Chazal already sensed the difference between immediate Avelos and distant Avelos. Mitzvah in a couple of months. Hopefully we shouldn't, but if the base of Mikdash isn't built, so we'll engage in what the Gemara in Yevamos deems Avelus Yishana. And the Gemara contrasts that with Avelus Chadasha. Avelus Chadasha is immediate, is raw, is carries a sting and a shock and a trauma, and it's felt in the initial stages through Aninus, and then it tapers off through Avelus of Shiva, and ultimately Avelus of Shloshim. Avelus Yishana is a little bit more remote. It affords perspective, it's broader, it doesn't carry the sting, it doesn't carry the shock. It, it's a wince. A year ago, when the Vluchenstein was nifter, not because it was unexpected, the trauma wasn't based on its being sudden. As Rav Moshe Vluchenstein described, there was a ship that, slowed sailing into the, that sailed slowly into the distance and slowly, slowly, gradually disappeared beyond the horizon. But it was an experience that changed our world. I couldn't imagine a world without my Rebbe, who I thought of minute by minute, who I felt pivoted my entire religious consciousness, my human consciousness. I remember the day I walked into the yeshiva, I was about to give shir, and we heard the news that Rav Lichensin had an incident, and then a few minutes later, that unfortunately it hadn't been resolved, and we weren't allowed to share the news because the family still hadn't heard. And we had to give shir, Knowing that knowledge, I was torn up inside. And I, I, I could hardly hold back the tears. But a year has passed, and Baruch Hashem, I feel that the world, Torah world in particular, has begun as I believe would so eloquently articulated to appreciate who this man was. We've all processed, and so many people have written and spoken. And now it's become more of an Avelis Yishana, not an Avelis Chadasha. And even in the Torah, we just finished the Eretz we read Kedoshim. I was in Sao Paulo for Shabbos, I read Acharemos like you read. And uh, the first Pasuk of Acharemos registers the shock value, so to speak, of Mises Nadav and Avi Acharemos, Shnei Rashi already comments that the Torah is invoking it for shock value, the muscle of the doctor. Enodoma, a doctor that warns a patient in theory, to a doctor that warns a patient by providing a real case in real time, of people who suffered based on the infraction. Thank you. Thank you. And yet, in Bamidbar, so Mises, Nadav, and Avio are invoked twice, in the beginning and in the end, in both times that they're counted. The Torah there is registering the Avelos, but not with the same shock and the same poignancy as in Acharemos. So, a year removed from Marina Barbanos, Ptira, it affords us a broader perspective, more pondered, more contemplative perspective. As Rav Lichtenstein used to quote, and I'll talk about this later, used to quote 19th century author Matthew Arnold, to see the world steadily and to see it whole, to see Rav Lichtenstein steadily and whole, beyond the tears and beyond the shock of not having this great man. And it also allows us and affords us an opportunity not just to venerate but also to assess the impact he had on our lives and the impact he continues to have on our lives, not just to mourn his loss and to stand in awe and veneration, as I believe what's so eloquently expressed, but what, is he, what did he mean to us? How did he shape us? And how should he continue to shape our lives? I think that, at least for myself, having processed the last year and spoken so often and written so many, as often as I could, a chance to take a few paces back, now that the year of Avelis has ended, and to try to develop this broader perspective. One thing I'm very gratified, and Rabbi Leibowitz mentioned it before, is that I feel like those who only knew Ravaran through his writings, through his speeches, through his Chidush Torah, saw him in the way you described him, as this titanic Talmud Chacham, as a world-class practitioner of the Brisker Derech, as a intense, unflinching, uncompromising Masmid who galvanized Unhuman, superhuman energies in the pursuit of Torah, as a human being whose avodas Hashem permeated every fiber, every minute, through Tehishmei Rabbos penetrated Shemayim, Shemay Shemayim. And that human side that the Talmudim appreciated, I think, was not fully discerned by those who saw him only through text and through Torah. And I believe that over the last year, 
the family, the Talmudim have done a wonderful job in trying to round out that profile of a man who was so compassionate and kind, who was sensitive and noble, who respected human beings. I've never seen another human being shower respect upon every person he met. The story which is so indelible. He once told us that someone once said, unless he told us, at least in my memory, uh, it's so hard for me to remember what Ravarn told me, what he didn't tell me, and I'll talk about this later. It's, it's, I can't separate my identity from what he told me. It's hard for me to remember. It's so deeply ingrained by the fidelity. He said he told us about Rishon Zalman, that he used to say about him in Yiddish, and Ravarn would always say things in Yiddish and then translate into Hebrew. Even though he knew that most of the Israelis could hardly understand Yiddish, I felt as if he was bridging us back to the European, European world of the yeshivas. And uh, to me, and this is certainly not the topic I intended to speak about tonight, I hear a lot of Americans mourning or bemoaning, a lot of Americans mourn the fact that he left America and how American Jewry would have been different had he remained behind. Because they understand the appointed successor to the Rabzatzal but you can't underestimate the impact that Ravarin had on the Atara world in Eretz Israel. The Hezder world was evolving in the early 70s and it was dominated by Tamid and Rav Kook. And then their Derech and their Mahalich. Ravarin succeeded in infusing and reinforcing the Lithuanian model of yeshivas in the Hezder world. And it's not a battle, Chas Hashem, but the struggle to maintain that Lithuanian flavor, the classic Lamnesha approach to Tara, that is a injection and infusion that he was responsible for, that he was successful. And that's going to last Dari Daras. That's not, that's not an accomplishment in Galas. That's an accomplishment in the Torah world in Eretz Yisrael. So I think that Ravarn told us the story that they said about Rishlom Zalman that he, even if he weren't the God of Hador, and Ravarn said in Yiddish, he would have been the nicest Jew in Yerushalayim. And sometimes when Ravarn said things, Immediately it clicked that for us he was talking about himself. He wasn't. He was so humble. But I can honestly tell you that if Rav Lichtenstein warned the Gadol Ador that you just described, as if it signed the Shains to Yid in Katamon. And you saw this during the Shiva, the, the Anim who visited the grocery store owner from Katamon. He hadn't lived in Katamon in 10 years. He'd lived in Alon Shavuot, came crying, bawling, the staff of yeshiva, the Arabs, the Palestinians, sat in the shiva room bawling their eyes out. Bawling their eyes out because Ravara made a point every Arab Rosh Hashanah to go over to Muhammad and to Id and to Musta, every single member, and to wish him a Shana Tova and the kavo that he gave people and the compassion that he showed. And I'm happy that that profile has been developed over the year. I get a sense that people now appreciate that updated profile of our Rebbe. I'd like to discuss three unique points, or three different points this evening, which have not been clear to me until... I should give uh, thank, thank you and gratitude to Gavi for arranging this. It was not clear to me until I said, until I started conceiving what I would speak about tonight. Three points that have distilled or coalesced over the past year, as I've thought about my Rebbe, spoken about my Rebbe, and tried to process it. Excuse me for a second. I alluded before to Rav Lichtenstein's compassion and to his morality. Very often we conflate those two terms, compassion and morality. But they don't always, or they don't often mutually cohere within one person. One is ideological, and one is interpersonal. We meet people sometimes who are clear voices of moral clarity, of moral courage, of right and wrong, beacons of ethics, beacons of morality, moral indignance. But very often their ideological drive deafens them to personal sensitivities, to individual hearts, to individual human beings. They're ideologues. They're beacons. They're speakers. They pontificate. Hopefully they pontificate authentically, not hypocritically, but they loudly voice moral opinions which we orient our lives around. 
And sometimes we meet people who are sensitive, compassionate, responsive, tender, gentle, interactive, relieving of other people's distress. But as I mentioned before, very, very often they don't overlap. They don't converge within one heart. It's very difficult for them to converge because one is an idea, it's abstract, it's global, it's large, and one is soft and quiet and sensitive and targets a human being and their personal suffering and their personal world. In revolutioning the union between that moral outrage and moral courage and moral clarity and that personal care and gentleness and sensitivity and kindness. He wasn't afraid to take moral stance. Very morally courageous. And there was a tone. Yeshaya talks about call out with your not with your lips, not with your tongue, not krab belashon, not krab isfasayim, krab garon. Garon is a deeper part. It's the larynx, as we would say. When he became morally outraged and morally indignant, he literally spoke in a different tone. I, I could hear his voice. The voice changed. The tonality changed. He was too gentle and too kind to ever use the word hate. But there were certain experiences which he found so morally detestable. I once heard him say, I hate laziness. He couldn't tolerate people who were lazy. He couldn't tolerate people who were selfish. Which is, by the way, why he was so, so uh, attractive and so, looked so favorably upon sports. Because sports didn't represent the teamwork, lack of selfishness. Sports represented a work ethic. Sports represented time management. There's never an adorbeis. This year was a shadow Muvaris. There was never an adorbeis. And the tradition of the having to do with something that won some game in the 1950s in the last two seasons. Just to demonstrate the I hate laziness, he would say. I, start, I don't want to imitate him, although my imitation is flattery because his voice pervades my consciousness. It haunts me. But those Talmudim here, Remember, his voice would deepen and it would come not from his lips, it wouldn't come from his tongue, it would come from his neshama. He felt such moral outrage and expressed such moral indignance. Remember, he once told us that when you face a moral dilemma, you shouldn't ask yourself abstractly what's right or wrong. You should try to identify a role model whose morality and ethics you deeply admire and ask yourself in concrete terms, how does that person behave? So we asked Rebbe, who is your moral role model? And we expected him to say the Rav. He didn't say that. He said his moral role model was Ravarin Soloveitchik. And having learned afterwards, I, I, I didn't know Ravarin Soloveitchik. I only knew him through my looking at him. I was in the field to examine more you. But the stories they tell about Ravarin Soloveitchik and the defiant, morally courageous, futile, so to speak, stands he took just because they were right. The moral indignancy showed. And we saw that in Ravarin. I just want to mention three more stands that he took, which you may not be aware of. In 1973, there was a Libyan civilian airliner that invaded Israeli airspace. And the army tried to contact the, the pilot, and there was no response. And ultimately, fearing a terrorist attack on the eve of the Yom Kippur War, the Israeli Air Force shot down a Libyan airliner. And 150 or so civilians were killed. And most people... Brushed under the carpet, the casualties of war. These are the peripheral damages that war, so to speak, the Yom Kippur War. Rav Aaron was outraged. We have blood on our hands. And he and Rav Amital demanded a government inquiry. And they were the only ones. And evidently the story goes, they were sitting in the Rakhi party, Rav Aaron and Rav Amital, and they were demanding an inquiry. And Berg was resisting. And at some point, the phone rang. Berg answers the phone, talks for a few minutes, smiles, puts down the phone, turns to Ravar and Ravamital, says, you'll now have your inquiry. Inquiry. Why? It was the Rav on the phone. The Rav had called from New York and had threatened to withdraw Mizrahi support from America unless it was a government inquiry. And then, of course, in 1982 and 83, with the Sabra and Shatila, with the, the, the Christian Arabs who were killed by... It, it, 
it wasn't our fault, so to speak. We didn't murder these defenseless. We were at war. We were defending the North, Shlomo Galil. They were under our stewardship, and we were meant to protect them. And if they were victimized, then we have to account. And no one else voiced this more or less. And then, of course, in 1995, one of the greatest Chil Hashem's, and Rav felt that much of it is not about Rav Amital, but he felt the Chil Hashem so acutely that Yigal Amir assassinated a Jewish prime minister, and he came from our world. He was a Hezder Talmud, he was part of the Zatilami community, he was part of a... Everyone was trying to marginalize, it's really not reflective, and it's just a bit... The phrase was, Esev Ra, bad seed, a bad weed. And Ravara was adamant that there needs to be soul-searching, this community, this is the Chidol Hashem. So we were exposed to unmistakable, unqualified, moral clarity. And as I mentioned before, there was a tonality to it. And then the same person, which is so sensitive to human beings, to their needs, to individuals, to children, to... He would, uh, you would see him at a wedding... And he'd be involved in two things and two things only. After, of course, he's a Masada Kedushin. First of all, he danced with every ounce and every every fiber of energy from the opening bell till the end. He'd be mocked to dance. Most of us yeshivas are common Masada Kedushin. They dance, a symbolic dance. They go in the middle with the chosan and maybe say mazel tov. He would dance and dance until the first uh, dance was finished, until literally the band ended, even afterwards when the boys got around and gathered around, he would continue dancing. And then he would be talking to all mamas. And he would be talking to the, the elderly people who came to the wedding, that typically no one pays attention to, they're sitting on the side, they have to be invited. He would spend an hour and a half. An hour and a half talking. We'd, be, we'd just be amazed, who's that person that he's talking to? And then the tale and the savor of the story was, just unrelated but important enough, he refused, when you offered him a ride home from the wedding, he refused to sit in the front and let the wife sit in the back. He would push it, not get into the car. He said, I'm going to separate a man and his wife on the night. They're going to spend time together. He refused to get in. So we were embarrassed. He sitting next to my wife, and then he'd be sitting in the back. But that was the only way he would take the ride. To this day, come meet him if he was, I'm traumatized. I can't get in the car. I feel, I feel embarrassed to get into the front seat. If it means this place in the and that combination of compassion, of sensitivity, of kindness, in the end of his life, this is a story you probably haven't heard, he became the candy man in the yeshiva. The little children would come over to Ravaran and he'd give them candy. You imagine? Sure, you haven't, you never thought of Ravaran as a candy man. His gentility, his softness, wasn't charismatic, for sure. The terror that Rabbi Leibowitz described when you were it was absolutely there. I'll describe that a bit later. But how soft he was, how soft. And I just, it took me so long to understand the union of the two. I just, it didn't make sense to me. As I mentioned before, at an auditory level, it was hard to hear him speak sometimes. He spoke in such low tones. He whispered. He didn't. And then, in the middle of a shir, in the middle of a sicha, when he reached that crescendo, and he was expressing that morally clear, it was fulminating. It was thunderous. And I think that's the... I'll say this as carefully as I can. It's a human microcosm of how we see Kutubrechu. Kol Hashem Makoch, Kol Hashem Bata. We feel the Koch of the Barni Shalom. We see the Koch. We also sense Yashev B'Seser Elyon, Yitzel Shaddai Yislanon. This sense that the two can cohere, which for us seems so odd, so peculiar. And Rivara was seamless. And that's the first point I wanted to convey tonight, that union between two forms of morality which don't often convey. One is ideological, one is pivoted on ideas, broad ideas, global ideas, global agendas. How can we shape the community? How does the world operate? And one is pivoted on human beings. The second issue speaks to 
his Talmud Torah, which Rabbi Leibowitz alluded to earlier. Chazal tell us, you should continue to churn and to ruminate over Torah because Torah is everything. And Torah is literally everything. It encompasses the totality of the human experience. It's cosmic. It's immortal. It's eternal. It's such a intricately and sophisticated network of details, multi-layered. Think of it as a lattice of endless layers, an endless abyss incorporating the Chachma of the Rabboni Shalom. To put it frankly, in our relationship with Torah, we're overmatched. Because Torah is Chachma Sashem. And we're Basar Vadam. And Shlomo expresses this all the time, Chachami Kaladam, Marti Echkemavi and even he felt overmatched when he faced off with the Torah. Let me put it to you in our terminology. Torah literally sucks the oxygen out of the room in a positive way. Because it's so demand, it's so dominant, and it's so central, and it's so formative. And because we're overmatched, I think people who study Torah, who are in love with Torah, subdivide into two different categories. Call them the horizontals and the verticals. Some people in their relationship with Torah are vertical. They delve ceaselessly into every last detail, excavating every divine, every divine mineral from that quarry Every last Tosfos. And who hasn't felt that? Who hasn't heard that magic, that whisper, the next Tosfos, the next Yubiki Vehegar, that next line of the Pnei Yoshua? What do Rebbe Hanan say? That whisper, that mystique that draws at your heart and promises epiphany, an encounter with Chachmas Hashem. But you can only see that next line in Tosfos and, and that next Bedutam. And what a glorious Ramban. And they delve and they delve and they delve. Just uncover, they're diggers. Call them the microprocessors. They microprocess every detail, every halacha, every jot and tittle in a sefer. And then there are people who are horizontal, who sense the majesty of Torah, the sweep, the way in which it comments upon all of human experience, all of human history, all of cosmic reality, the sweep, the tapestry, the encompassing nature of Torah, the relevancy of Torah, beyond human experience. And they're the macroanalysts. They're not the microprocessors, they're the macroanalysts. Very few... And Chazal obviously intended that we should be both macro analysts and microprocessors, but the human mind and the human heart is limited. How much can a human being process? So people decide. People make their choice. People who are saying, everyone has to carve out their chelak and tara. So for some people, their chelak and tara is horizontal. And for some people, their chelak and tara is vertical. Some are diggers, and some spread the canvas. Some are microprocessors, and some are macroanalysts. Very rarely do you find someone who encompasses both. And that was a rar. And when those two are united, that is the true glimmer of Torah. That, when you're looking at that combination, you're looking at the true profile of Torah Sashem. Depth and the breadth. The macro and the micro. And that's what Ravaran delivered to us. I don't have to tell you how big a Tamachachim he was. I don't have to tell you how big a Masmi he was. I don't have to tell you how deeply and assiduously and fervently he pursued every detail of Debar Hashem. How much he valued every single Kutzel Shal Yud.
but he's also the greatest, if not one of the, if not the greatest thinker of our generation who pondered Torah's message for Jewish history, for the post-Holocaust experience, for human experience, for human interaction. And this combination is so unusual. And to be honest, it's what we miss so terribly in Ravon. I don't see it. I don't see it at communal levels. Take, for example, the Haredi community. Baruch Hashem, that community is learning Torah and studying Torah at unprecedented levels. Who would have imagined 70 years ago the spread of Torah? Kol Torah Nishma Bi'artzeinu. To me, it's simply a Simenagula. If you ask me, to, how do I know this is Gula? It's Pashat. It's clear as day. The resurgence and the revival of Torah. It's now uh, seven. It's now eight um, thirty-three. Another sefer has just been published in Bnei Brak. <laughs> and if we wait another two minutes, there'll be another sefer published. And Baruch Hashem, we're all the beneficiaries of all that Torah. But it's almost entirely devoted to microprocessing. And extreme microprocessing. I'm not familiar with the svarim, but I'm familiar. There's been an entire new genre of svarim created in our in our generation. Huge voluminous svarim about peripheral topics. I'm not, I'm not up to date, but 500 page svarim about you could probably fill in about the DNA, Er Pesach Shechal, the Tubishvat or something. <laughs> no, <but> seriously. <laughs> no, the, it, topics that are relevant, but the amount of attention paid to them is disproportionate to their relevancy, but it's microprocessing. Okay, now I don't understand the Mishnah Bura, or whatever Moshe Feinstein really mean, and the Chazanish is Machlokes of the Moshe Feinstein, and in this detail, and that detail, and this Masar. It's beautiful. But it's all vertical. It's all microprocessing. And people are either disinterested or unqualified for the macroprocessing. What does Torah mean in history? How does it comment on the human condition? What is its relevancy? The why? Applying it? Stretching it? And I miss Ravarin terribly, and I think we all miss Ravarin terribly in that area. And that dual engagement of Ravarin endowed us with confidence. Seeing a Godel of that caliber, we received a large-scale, global view of the meaning of Taras Hashem. His sichot were odysseys. They were one-and-a-half-hour odysseys through Torah and its relevancy and its pertinence, receive the larger picture, as what some would call it, from the very same world-class Talmud Chacham who is helping us excavate those quarries and extracting the minerals from what so many people view as insular and parochial sugyos. And as I said before, this is the real portrait of Torah. What's interesting is it wasn't just a union of two different areas of Torah. It was an overlap. What do I mean by an overlap? When we studied Gemara, as parochial as some would call it, and as vertical as it may seem, we sensed universalism. We sensed that the world around us was shut out, and the world and time stood still. And Ravaran's famous phrase, he loved this phrase, Devarim, and I hear his voice, Devarim ha'omdin berum and he would only use that phrase about a Gemara. Never use that phrase about anything else. Chazal said, How many people today, unfortunately, sadly, see Atosos and Beitza as Devarim Ha'omdim Berumo Shal Olam, as world-shaping information, as, uh, as headlines. Doesn't make the headlines. But for ours, the headlines. So it's not as if we took a break from our universal, global discussion of the meaning of Torah to delve into a Tosas When we delve into the Tosas and Nidarim, we had the sense, this is cosmic. This is immortal. This is more important. This is the Vermontim Rum Shalom. A phrase that was so resonant, Havayis Tabayi Barava. Havayi Barava, Vermontim Rum Shalom. And the same was also true when he delivered his Sichot which, whose genre, whose topic was, so to speak, much more universal. And we felt the topic soaring beyond the four walls of the base matters, the topics being discussed. 
the methodology and the technique were still the same. He always drew his ideas from Chazal. He always drew the idea from a Pasuk, and he'd read the Pasuk so carefully. And every word could be read twice in three different fashions. And he drew it from a Halacha. You would think you were sitting in a Halacha here. It's Friday night. He was discussing Echveis, Moshe Rabbeinu, and Paro. And all of a sudden, there was a 20-minute interlude about Dina Me'ilah. And at the end of that interlude, Dina Me'ilah, he drew out some moral lesson that Moshe and Paro were quarreling about or struggling about. But it came from Me'ilah. It came from the Kutzah Shalyud. And it was just seamless. It was inseparable. And that's what made his message and his impact so powerful. We felt as if we received the total sleep as as close as possible as human beings can to the godless Ambari, to the godless of Torah. Because we were sensing the depth and the umkoshal Torah and the vertical lattice and network of the details of Devar Hashem and the broad, resplendent, irradiant tapestry of how Torah has shaped human experience and, of course, HaKadosh Baruch Hu's evolution and HaKadosh Baruch Hu's historical plan. And the third issue I wanted to talk about tonight, first issue, was the union between ideology and moral clarity and compassion and sensitivity. The second issue is microanalysis and macro, or microprocessing and macroanalysis. The third issue, I have to first issue a disclaimer. How I perceived his view of Taramada. But that's a disclaimer, and I'll issue two disclaimers. Number one, I'm in no way a qualified philosopher I'm not educated about these fields to the degree that those who render judgments about Taramada or subscribe to those ideologies I certainly don't have the credentials to render an authoritative opinion. Number one. Number two, I'm not the type of person that has read every single word he wrote and every single... I've got very poor eyesight. I don't read well. I like thinking more. I hardly have read most of his works. I attended a lot of his lectures. I attended the conventions, the RCA convention. But this is not the voice of someone who is well-versed in the world of philosophy, who has carefully, carefully scrutinized every every text he wrote about Torah Amada. And he wrote a lot about it. I de- this is just the impressions of a Talmud. Having heard him and listened to him for 32 years and listening to Sichot, this is his teaching. This is the view of Torah Amada that I gleaned from his teaching. My general sense of Reb Soloveitchik's Taramada is this sense of a collision of two foreign worlds and the synthesis or the attempted synthesis between two worlds that are perceived as antithetical. Thesis, antithesis, yielding synthesis. So he took these broad worlds, broad ideas that were articulated far afield from the world of Torah, Kantian morality, how does that jive and how does that parallel Jewish morality? And converging the two, he created a synthesis. Or crisis theology, it's a whole field of Christian thought called crisis theology, introduced us to all these authors, Rudolf Otto, and, and how, does, well, how does that system, either by way of contrast or by way of parallel, how does that system comment on our system? Ravaran was, was never... He wrote abundantly about Taramada, but and and to dispute that fact would be dishonest. And there's one thing the Republicans need to test it, it was dishonesty. But in his teachings and in his Sichot, it was very different. Rav Aaron was a humanist. He was a deep believer in the virtue and the nobility of the human condition. He was a lover of people. And in his pursuit of Avodah Hashem and religious identity, if he sensed that human beings outside of the Jewish orbit had articulated meaningful ideas that would help enrich or frame our Avodah Hashem, then he warmly embraced them and quoted them and learned from them. But it wasn't a clash of systems. It wasn't a synthesis of ideas. He was pursuing Avodah Hashem. 
And if he found human beings who articulated ideas which enriched and elucidated his pursuit of a Vodas Hashem, he felt them to be worthy. The Pasuk, I would say, is I don't think Ravon ever left the Mikdash. His gaze was very far afield. His vision was panoramic. He understood the world whole and large. But he stood in the Mikdash and he drew ideas that people outside of the Mikdash had articulated and to maintain the imagery is even a Nachrik can bring the carpet. Aquam no Dizvachim can bring carbon oil. But it was a very, very different. And let me give you two examples just to concretize it. There is one word I never heard him say. And it's a word that people always employ. I never heard him say this word. Whenever he would quote someone, he never said the word Lahavdil. People would normally say, okay, Tosa says this, and Maral says so and so, and. Uh, yeah, be honest, and Ibishitz felt as following. I think my parents are here. If I can just uh, ask someone to help my mother. And then, then so say the Morel says such and such. Daddy, sorry. Morel says such and such, and Slasema uh, says so and so. And Lahavdil, Shakespeare, because they feel the need to create a boundary between Kodesh and Chol. Ravarin didn't feel that need for a boundary. Because he was firmly rooted in Kedusha. And if, as he told us, if there were Gentile authors who, unencumbered by the pursuit of halacha and lambdas, had the time to articulate important religious ideas, they should be reckoned and they should be regarded. He never used the word lavda. I don't remember. I don't remember. A lot of them meet him in the room. You ever remember using the word lavda? And I'll bring you a second raya. Kosev Hashani. Shnei in this case, we Paskin Malamda. It was a Friday night. It was in Yeshiva. And Friday night, Ravarin spoke in his prime. Minimum an hour and a half. Minimum. And of course, the boys are a little fashlafadik. So the first three rows, you know, not, nodding their heads, bobbing their heads up and down. And his parsha's Barashas that year, Yeshiva started Barashas, I guess Simchas Torah was on Shabbos, so he started the next year, Barashas, excuse me. And Ravana was talking about Chet Adam HaRishon and Chapa and Nachash. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, in his deep, garum voice, and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Fifty heads shot up. <laughs> Did he just quote Humpty Dumpty? <laughs> Mother of Goose? Evidently, it's a metaphor for the fall of man. That man fell so precipitously that he couldn't be reconstructed. I can't imagine the rough quoting Humpty Dumpty. It was a different feel. Of course, afterwards, that night, all the Israelis came over to us and Misa Humpty Dumpty, Achron, Rishon, Etzasef, Lukatah. They had no clue. But to me, that's the Raya. He wasn't quoting ideas. He wasn't creating these clans, denouncing one or embracing the other. I'm just trying to articulate it, to clarify it. Remember the sheer he gave on a Suma having an Aliyah Latara. Unforgettable. Because his father was sitting in the room and his father, towards the end of his life, was both blind and a little bit demented. And which, by the way, there's, I mean, there's so many peripheral uh, stories and, and um, uh, we could be speaking to 500 boys in the base. Matters would be silent. You could hear a pin drop. And his father would start to hallucinate or he stopped the shear on a dime, sat with his father, moved him to the side, calmed him down, and then came back and gave the shear. And I promise you, for those 10 minutes, no one said a word. So he was giving a shear and whether it was Soma Kanaban Aliyah, he called him out to Binyamin, Masas Binyamin, excuse me, and we all knew, and it was, it was a beautiful shield because we knew what he wanted to say. We knew what confirmation bias, he knew that he wanted the Maskana to be, but he went through the halachic process. And he quoted Samson Agonistes. Samson Agonistes is the poem that Milton wrote when he was in prison and blind. And he used that, and not, not during the shear, but he always referred to that as he felt that Milton, by <coughs> writing this poem through his own blindness, 
in describing Samson, Shimshon's blindness, was able to give him insight to what his father was experiencing. That's not a religious pursuit to identify with another human being suffering. Chazal were busy with the vice of Bayavarava. Brum Shalom had to define me. Lechveisen, Shirkebeitsen, Sfirasalmer, one mitzvah, two mitzvah, 49 mitzvahs. If John Milton, a kind, noble human being, was able to articulate this, then you have to take it seriously. And that's the, that was my, that was my sense of how he viewed what we call Taramaja. Again, I don't like the phraseologies and I, I don't like the, the terms, but it's very different. So those are the three ideas that I couldn't imagine a year ago because of the shock and, and the pain and the sting. Remember, um, at nine o'clock they called in the Rabbanim, the yeshiva, into the room with the mace. With the, with the river and the body. We had a half an hour to be with him. Spade him again at 10. You've never heard 25 men, grown men cry and shriek as loudly. It was apocalyptic. We all tore Korea. We were screaming at the top of our lungs. These were grown men, grandfathers. About 20 minutes, we had half an hour. We said to him, about 20 minutes into that, we settled down, we composed ourselves. And then the family was waiting at 9.30. That was their time to come in. And the spader would begin at 10 o'clock. And when we walked out and we saw Tova and Moshe and all the children there, they were shrieking. We lost it. All the Rabban lost it again. And the halls of the Yeshiva were filled with earth-shattering shrieks. Shrieking, screaming, screaming. Was that the Shiva? I was talking to Tova. Nasty. Tova Nestor is saying, you know, we were outside the family. We were pretty composed. But when we saw the Rabban come out of the room crying, we lost it. said, so you lost it, we lost it. It was very difficult to process because the trauma was so deep. So those are the three ideas. The union between compassion and moral clarity, between human sensitivity and moral indignance and courage. Being horizontal and vertical in Torah, being a macro analyst and a microprocessor. And for him, everything was Torah, but in the pursuit of Torah, human beings outside of the world of Torah had significant contributions. Now, in the modern jargon, we call this a theme alert. When many different ideas all have the same theme, there's a common denominator between the three ideas I expressed. The common denominator is that as human beings, we're divided people. It's inevitably, we're divided. Only our Kodesh Baruch Hu is Echad. Only a bonus is indivisible. Human beings are divided. We all have different parts to our identity, different parts to ourselves. We're composites. We're jigsaw puzzles. Now, if those divided parts of our personalities are radically different, then it's ugly, then it's hypocritical. We act one way in one setting, a different way in a different setting. Hopefully, the differences and the discrepancies in the different aspects of our identities are not that jagged, they're not that radically different and conflicting, and they create what I would call as reservoir of identity. We have a reservoir of different identities. Hopefully they're all virtuous and noble. And we draw upon this. So in this setting, we draw upon one aspect of our identity. In this setting, we draw upon another aspect of our identity. It's a reservoir of identity. And Baruch Hashem, most of us, we cope and we, whether it's virtuous and it's noble, hopefully all those fragments of identity serve the Rabbani Shalom, are moral or just or kind or honest or authentic. True character is when all those aspects of identity become completely integrated and completely indivisible and completely inseparable. We have a word for that in English, but it's an abused, it's a misused word. We call it integrity. We normally associate integrity with moral activity and moral behavior. It isn't. Integrity means integrated behavior. You're the same person regardless of setting, regardless of context, regardless of pressure, regardless of environment. In theory, a serial killer can have integrity. If he's a serial killer, independent of the setting, he's a person of integrity. We typically assign the word integrity with moral flavor, with moral prejudice. But when we reach that level of fusion, that's true character. I feel that's what we saw in Ravara. 
he was so deeply integrated as a person. We didn't sense any serration. There was no, there was no serrated edges. There was nothing jagged. It was one woven fabric. It was one constant, durable, powerful, sturdy personality. I wrote about this a few days after the the Patera. There's one one example in the pit. Aside from those that I've mentioned this evening. Some people see Ravara as a great progressive, as a great liberal, as a forward-thinking person who changed and created. And then other people know him as a chumra. We never went to ask Ravara for, for, for Sakalacha because you knew the answer would be the Mahmi, who was a legendary Mahmi. So was he a conservative, a small C, or was he a progressive? Was he a preserver, or was he an innovator? He really was both. And somehow, it wasn't a union. It wasn't a hybrid. It was a fusion. It was complete and total integration of concepts and ideas which to us seem paradoxical and maybe they can reside and mutually coexist, but in Ravara they didn't coexist. It had melded into one solid identity. And that's, I believe, why his impact is so profound. It's hard for me to describe it, but our development so often is a patchwork. It's a patchwork. We meet people who model this trade and model that trade and this aspect. And Baruch Hashem, we weave it together into a holistic, organic fabric. Rav Mary says, in Abba's Rav Nassim, a person has one Rebbe that he learns. It's in Parak Dalit, I think, in Abba's Rav Nassim, that he learns Gemara, Halacha, Machshava. It's like someone that has one Sada, he plants Chitim, he plants Sa'ara, he plants Geffen, he plants Sesim, and he has everything. A person doesn't have one Rebbe, it's like a person, I'm paraphrasing, has different sados, and one he plants chita, and one he plants sara, and one he plants gefen, nimsa, mefuzer, bena sados. It was such a clear, sturdy, abiding, durable message. It was, as we would say in today's jargon, one-stop shopping. Everything under one roof, but not in different sections. It was only not one-stop shopping, one product shopping. It was only one product. People sometimes ask me, Especially this year, I've spoken a lot about Ravara, but typically when I speak, I'm always quoting Ravara Mikhail. Ravara Mikhail's story, Nigan, a line, a vart. And I hardly ever quote Ravara. Why don't you quote Ravara more often? In an honest way, in an inquiring way. So first of all, because it's very difficult, because there's no one line that captures. Everything was so intricate and latticed and, and networked and it's hard to find that one line or one story. To quote Rivera would mean quoting five pages just to convey a point. That's how. That's what makes his works and his ideas so impenetrable to people because his way of thinking and speaking was so complex. I mentioned before the Friday night sichot. I would come home. My wife would be patiently waiting. She gets a lot of chutz for waiting all those Friday nights. The rest of our lunch foot sat down and eat. Seven o'clock, we'd make kiddush at 9.30 and 10 o'clock. And they say, what did Ravaran speak about tonight? I say, well, he said Moshe was a good person. <laughs> so it took him two hours to say that. But what does good mean? And what does Tov mean? And good to Kaddish Baruch Hu, And good to Brios? And two types of good? And what are the dangers of good? And what are the positives of good? And different types of future good? Bad good? Past good? Everything was just a burgeoning tree. Just imagine this tree sprouting leaves and branches in a never-ending process difficult to quote that, difficult to read that. But it's more than that. It's more fundamental. He was so integrated and so seamless. He literally built our identity from bottom up. I can't quote him because I don't say this I don't know who I am without him. He is me. He is in my kishkas. Normally, Rabbanim inspire us. They educate us. We have our identity. Think of your identity. Who are you? Who's your identity? And that identity, Baruch Hashem, has been inspired and educated and taught and lessened. So Rabbanim and people and, and moral guides and people who inspire us download or impose, not impose, Hashem, but download and augment your identity. But I think Hamid felt like he invaded our identity. He became our identity. So it's impossible to quote because you can't quote yourself. 
when, you, when you're making a point, you want to quote someone who confirms or corroborates your point. I was sitting last night in, in Sao Paulo discussing, I, I, I was trembling because I simply don't remember what he said, what I said, because it's just such a blur in my mind, not because of forgetfulness, because it haunts our, forged our identity so deeply. And that's why I think his Talmudim received so much from him, because it was so integrated. It was such integrity. He was the same person. All these paradoxes, all these aspects, they just melded seamlessly. There was no gap. There was no serration. There was nothing jagged. I'd like to end with two points, two separate personal points. Ravarim would always tell us about the Balai Hamasar, these great people who preserved Torah throughout the ages by taking heroic acts and being most nefesh for Torah. Some people were Balei HaMasara, heroes of the Masara, because they defied attempts to snuff out Torah. Shimon Bar Yochai, for example. Mirtashem, Shimon Bilag Bomer. Defied the Roman decree, stood proud and tall. They protected our Masara. Others had a sense of historical consciousness that Torah had to be reformatted and revamped because of a quickly changing world. Ezra Seifer. Ezra knew that with the return from Bavel, Torah had to be adapted. So he changed to Ksav Ashuras, and he read the Kriya Satara, and he had public Kriya. People of Ravaran Cutler, let's say, would be considered. So I had that sense, that timing, that sense. Other people um, understood that new svarim, new genres had to be written. Certainly, Vidanasi, Eislasas Lashem Meferatara Yosef Cairo, standardizing halacha, the Rambam, Yad Chazaka. So we have Balia Masara, who preserved the Masara through different acts, defiance, writing svarim, historical awareness. And then there's a group of Balia Masara who are just master teachers, who just had a lot of Talmidim, and they left their imprint upon these Talmidim across the Jewish world. Thing about, for example, of Yochanan ben Zakkai. Zakkai. The top end of the class was was Yonatan ben Uziel, at the bottom was uh, fortunately Hillel. There was the schlepper. Think about all of Yochanan ben Zakkai's talmidim. Here's the master rebbe. Something about Yochanan ben Zakkai. Think about uh, Rabbi Meir, let's say. Think about Rabbi Tam. Rabbi Tam revolutionized Torah. Not only through his writings, and not only because he developed new models of thought in Torah, classic, conflating two sugyas, Vim Tomar says in this sugya, and that friction creates creative identity, creative ideas. But he created these academies of Torah. There were 72, 70 Balayat also sitting in front of the Benetam, 70 Ravaji Yosef sitting in a room. Who can imagine? Sam Selfer. Some self revolutionized Hungarian jury in the 19th century. How many Talmudim, both within his family in general, and anyone who operated in the Eastern European theater in Hungary has a Chassam Selfer, took a Chassam Selfer as, as the beacon, as the lodestar of Hungarian jury. Master teachers. And I think that's something that we're looking to see. The says, Be'es kanes pazer, be'es pizor kanes. If everyone's learning and teaching Torah, then you can sit in the corner and open your Gemara and enjoy it. But when you feel the Torah is contracting, be'es kanes pazer, you have to spread it. Revaran sensed, not as a product of the Holocaust, because he circumvented the Holocaust, but in the post-Holocaust era, he sensed we have to implore talented people to become, first of all, Tamir Chachamim. I was in Pesach. Um, I was up north in a program in a kibbutz. And it just so happened there were a lot of Tamidim of the Yeshiva who came, but from all the ages. There were Tamidim there from the 70s through Tamidim who learned two, three years ago. It was about 20 Tamidim. just happened to come. And I turned to my wife and say, you know, Chinuch, you beat yourself up so often for the failures. You spend 90% of the time lying awake at night, crying about the boys that you're not able to reach. And it's nice to, Baruch Hashem, get a little nachas, because one after another, Ben Torah, this one's a Tamachacham, this one's learning, this one's giving shiur, and this one, one after another, after another. 
Rabbi Aaron implored us, implored us to enter Chinuch. And not just so that we could have time to learn Torah. Because he saw it as a union, as a marriage between Abbas Atara and Gemilas Chasadim. That union. I have two Aiden. My parents are in the room. So it's, uh, they're both, first of all, the Pasuk is a Krovin, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, they can say, they can say, Aidus, I came to Yeshiva. The last thing on my mind was to be a Rebbe. When I came to Yeshiva in 1983, the last thing on my mind was to be a Machanech and to be a Rebbe. But his imploring us to consider it never compelled us. The truth is, and I'll say this, he did compel us, but not aggressively and not overtly. It was a compulsion like you've never experienced because of the strength of his character. What did it for me was one Purim night, Erev Purim, famous Sichai he gave, he described Esther's initial reluctance to address Achashverosh, to approach him, to beg for Am Yisrael. And Mordechai is beseeching and imploring and exhorting her, please intercede. And he built up this whole drama, and he had a flair, he had a literary flair. He developed these psukim into these, in these luxurious stories. Of course, lengthy luxurious stories. He built it up to this climax where Mordechai challenges Esther frontally, and he said five words in Hebrew. And he repeated those five words in Miltonic style. That was his, you know, in Milton would always repeat words just for emphasis. And he voiced Mordechai, he paraphrased Mordechai to Esther, demanding of her. And he thundered, Ichbat lecha, o lecha, in Hebrew. Do you care, or do you not care? He thundered that, repeated it, I said, then five, six, seven times. I felt my knees buckling. I felt like he was staring right into my neshama. And that's the moment I decided I have to be on the right side of that question. And I changed my entire trajectory, my entire life. And it's an amazing experience to be forced into a decision I call a volitional compulsion. We just read about Paro's obstinacy. We're all covid We're all we have our identities. We don't just listen. We're not submissive. We don't just uh, forfeit our identity. We have to be convinced. When someone poses an idea that's compelling or convincing or persuasive, holds merit, we admit that idea into our hearts and we shape our lives based on that idea. Ravarin didn't persuade us. He forced us. But you wanted to be forced. You felt honored to be drawn after this person even if you didn't understand why you were being drawn, you couldn't make sense of it. But you realize it spoke of a truth that was beyond your ken and of a level of moral courage and of avodas Hashem that was far beyond anything you could articulate. I had the boys over a couple of weeks ago for what, a kiddush. No, we had a Shabbos. We talked about Ravarin or something. When I look back at it, I went to Yeshiva in 1983 with most of the high school boys. It's been, it's been two years. And then I came back two years after college, 1987. It was not popular to go back. Most of my friends those days, accountants, and they started working. And I always felt like I decided to go back because I wanted to learn more, because I planned, I wanted to be a Rebbe, whatever. Looking back, I went back for one reason, to be with Ravarin. It's clear to me. It wasn't Lishma. It wasn't because I felt like I wanted to, I just wanted to be with Ravarin. I just went back to be with Ravarin. And I think the same thing in 1993. I'd like to think that I'm a big ideologue and I'm a big Tzioni and I'll say hello on Thursday in mid-Aliyah 1993. I tossed away my career here in America. I, I just wanted to go to be with Varun. I, I felt being drawn ineluctably, inexplicably, compelled. But I was thrilled to be compelled. And that's his, the first legacy, that personal legacy that he, I think he will be seen First of all, his methodology was so clear. I, don't know, I think the Rav was just so creative and brilliant. Like a burst, an explosion of creativity. You can't train creativity. Ravarin was rigorous and regimented and methodologically sound, and he gave Shurman methodology. He literally paid the sugi for us. Rabbi Rosenzweig spoke in Yeshiva, I think during the Shloshim last year, and he talked about, he saw this as Ravarin's chesed, that he was such a bal chesed, 
some Bali Shi or some Magide Shir, and they want to impress you with their the last 15 kashas and, and give the svar and show you how, how great, how gewaldic this svar is. Kaftova Farah, how beautiful. And Ravaran just laid it all out on the table. Kashuchan Arach. Ravaran just told us, okay, this is how the Ramban is going to develop. He laid out the sugya, but he equipped us with the skills to develop that sugya. And in conclusion, and this is something which Shavari described before, I wanted to uh, read the following Medrash. Medrash in Veshanan. Medrash is considering the dual mitzvahs of Abbas Hashem and Yeras Hashem. Yesh Adam. Medrash, it's a free. Kishu misyari mechavero. When you're afraid of someone, what do you do? You walk away. Matricho, he burdens you too much. Manicho v'holichlo. Listen to the Lashon HaMedrash. Ein l'cha ahava b'makom yira, v'yira b'makom ahava, ela b'midas HaKadosh Baruch Hu b'lvad. It's an amazing, amazing paradox. You can feel love and terror at the same time. But we all know we feel that vis-a-vis the Baruch Not fear. We're not afraid. That's childish. That's juvenile. Or Distance. And comfort, a tremor. Well, Rabbi Akiva told us in that famous Gemara Msachim, Shimon Hamsuni, Nacham Hamsuni, as Hashem, Alakia he was Darish every S, couldn't be Darish this S, because there's nothing that can compare to your S Hashem. That's a standalone experience that no human component can approximate. Akiva argued. Akiva says, S, Rabba Samit Chachamim. So, I'll say this as carefully as I can, but if you're zochet to see a gadol, you may be zochet to feel a, a, a fraction, a fraction, some level of how you feel and how you will encounter and that was the miracle of Ravarin. We loved him to death. There was no love. Look at the videos, the love we felt for him, the admiration, the stories, the jokes, the imitations. It was all just absolute ava of a person that you could, you, you, you literally tremored when you spoke to him. You hyperventilated. You were in awe of this person and who he had become. And how can you have ava and yira Coexisting. Well, that's what Akadosh Baruch Hu expects and allows us to feel with His Godless, the Godless Abore. And somehow, again, at a human level, at a very, very different Madrega, at a very, very different level, as Talmidim, we're terrified. When He walked into the room, we all, the hair on our back stood up. Not because we're afraid of penalty or punishment, we just were in awe. He always he always outperformed the Musa he gave us. When people give you Musa, you're always very skeptical because scratch a sinner, find a, scratch a saint, find a sinner, hypocrisy, do you live up to it? And then we finally find people who live up to the standards they preach. And those are the people who are willing to embrace their Musa. We always felt as if he was overperforming his expectations of us. He was demanding of us, but there was no question that he would supersede whatever levels he expected from us. And we just opened our heart to him because we saw that authenticity. So that year of Avelis has now come to a close. As I said before, there's literally not a day I don't think about him, if not dozens of times. And I'm sure the Tibetan feel the same. And uh, we're a fortunate door to have and now we're all the I don't think we'll have someone of that caliber. But um, just to conclude, I'll quote something that one of my colleagues said, and it paralleled something that my family felt and expressed to me. We say in davening, if the Kriya Satara, Tamidem, 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 Bahamakam is Moshvasayim. Rabbi Gottlieb, Rabbi Gottlieb, I think he's going to be speaking here to Shavuos, teaching in Yeshiva. So he says, that's the difference between a Gadol and a Rebbe. Many rebbeim in this room. You all have rebbeim. They impress you. They change your life. They help you with your family. They shape your religious world. Your vodas hashem. The rebbe, baruch hashem, we all have talmidim, one way or another. 
But a gadol is so resonant and so potent and so enduring that tamidei tamidehim are shaped. And now is the door, especially there's some younger people in the room of tamidei tamidehim. My family, they didn't sit through hours and hours at a varashirim. But they, they treated him, and my family had three grandparents, my father and my father-in-law and Ravar. They just, he was such an inherent part of our family because of the Masara that was so powerful. And it was just, uh, you know, it was just for Pesach, so it was the end of Pesach, and it was already winded, I'd given a lot of shiurim. And my son-in-law just married my daughter, he didn't even go to Gush. And the boy went to Malaya Dumim, he arranged that we should get together at the end of Pesach because Ravarim was always makbit to have the Sudas Mashiach and to sing Yom Liabasha, to sing that piyot. So, because he knew that if it's Pesach, we have to be like Ravarim. So, ma'inyin shmita you come from Aladum? No, he knows an entire family. It's Pesach. It's whatever Ravarim do on Pesach. So now we may not have a Rebbe, but we have Tamidim, Baruch Hashem Tamidim, Tamidim. And it's Hashem, um, his, his example, his life, his strength of character, and as I said before, his integrity. It was an entire Taras Hashem Tamima. It was a Tamimos, it was a Yaakov Ish Tam Yoshev Oholem. It was inseparable and indivisible. And that's what I think made it so powerful. He's a Chabarach Yishabach, I want for him.